Wheeling Aviation Podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Welcome to episode 281. You know, summer flying has arrived, and today we start off our annual discussion of summer flying with some interesting experiences and great advice from Eric Spears' co-host. And uh, my name, by the way, is Carl Valeri, and joining me today is Tom Frick and Sean Moody. And we're going to discuss just that, summer flying, trying to get you get get out there and fly and enjoy the summertime. And there's some great advice we have and tips and tricks as to how to make your summer flying both safe and also enjoyable. Let's do the pre-flight. Hey, before we begin, a quick shout-out to our sponsor. The sponsor of this podcast is Spartan.edu, Spartan School of Aeronautics. Uh, Spartan School of Aeronautics has done something. They've actually put out a bunch of scholarships guides. Those are those guides that we have with over $120 million in scholarships. You can get one for free by using their coupon code SPARTAN. How can you find that coupon? Real easy. Just go to stuckmikeavcast.com slash free, and you can get your free coupon for a scholarships guy. There's stuff out there for everybody. You want to get a new rating? They have them. It's really a lot of fun. Now entering cruise flight. Well, here it is. We're into summer, and it's uh, it's come with a bang, especially for those of us in Florida, up and down the coast. I've been doing a lot of my flying uh, up and down the East Coast, and it has been exciting. Some amazing fronts have come through, and there's some a, a few things that you know I want to kind of go over with you, and uh, some advice you know both Tom and and Sean and I want to talk about about summer flying. But first of all, I absolutely love summer flying for for many reasons, and uh, and I'd love to hear from the other co-hosts. But first, I'll start off with one of the things I really enjoy is number one is the days are. So so much longer. So what does that mean? We get more flying in. And that is one thing I absolutely, absolutely enjoy. Uh, The second part I love about summer flying, I don't worry as much about icing. You know, you still have to worry about icing, of course, but not as much. Uh, I know people in Florida are like, hey, do you really worry about (laughs) flying in ice? Of course we do. It does get cool down here sometimes. But those are the two big ones that I really, really enjoy. I'd love to hear from, you know, like Sean. I mean, what are some of the things, especially you're out there in, uh, I think, in Utah, what type of things do you like about summer flying? Well, like you said, the days are longer, which is great, uh, especially for a guy like me. I have a a day job that gets me up, uh, you know, early morning to mid-afternoon and that uh, that late day sunshine means I can fit a ton of flying into the day after work um, so that's that's awesome I love that unfortunately in the Salt Lake City uh, summertime it also adds up to we're in the middle of a heat wave right now I think it just touched a hundred degrees today so of course flying around in a uh, skyhawk in a hundred degree weather is uh, a little bit of a little bit of a hot box up there but we'll do anything we can to fly right yeah, that's for sure. I know you've been doing a lot of flight instructing, by the way, Sean, and I know we've watched your progress. Boy, a lot of firsts. You have a, a bunch of you know solos and uh, people getting their ratings. That that is so cool uh, during this whole summer process too. I think that's that's awesome. 
Yeah, yeah, it's been awesome to, to progress, and, and thank you to you all for the support all through the years, uh, from being not current to getting current to getting the CFI to now actually working as an instructor. It's uh, It's been a fun ride, and uh, yeah, now certainly learning all about what those uh, long CFI days in the summer are all about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of the things you have to worry about is bumping them against the maximum number of hours that you can fly, that's for sure. Uh, so that might be a little bit of a challenge in, in summer flying. Uh, but yeah, thanks for that, Sean. I really uh, appreciate your, your kind of, in your, your Facebook page and your Instagram and everything, you know, putting out there some of the really neat photos that you have. Um, also, Tom, I noticed you've been flying two different types of flying. You do a lot of CFI work. Uh, but you also have a, a quote-unquote day job, as they say, uh, flying uh, all over the country. Uh, one of the, what are the things you enjoy the most? Maybe relate something you've ha- seen this year or done this year. Well, um, I, I agree with you. I enjoy summer flying as well. I do love the longer days. I like being able to, uh, you know, um, get different times of flying in, you know, I mean, here in Florida, it's, uh, you know, you either get out first thing in the morning or last thing in the day. And usually middle of the day, it's, it starts to become, uh, well, what's sporty out there, if you will. You know, um, you had talked about the freezing level. I just looked it up. I mean, as we sit right now, the freezing level over the entire state of Florida is like at 13,000 feet. Wow. You know, so when, when we're putting around in the Cessna, you're right. We don't, we don't worry about freezing levels this time of year, but, um, you know, that, said we do worry about other weather phenomena which i'm sure we're going to talk about here as time goes on you know and that's that's why you know i enjoy the the mornings we get out and it's just nice and smooth and you usually get out and you know get a good flight in and then by the end of the day it usually happens again and you can you can get out and um get some get some nice flying time in and and the summer is great for that because it's nothing to go out, you know, for, for a ride at, you know, 7.30, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night, and you still got plenty of light out, and it, it's it's great flying. Yeah, I agree, and one thing I love about it is the fact I actually get to look out the window here. I'm at Lakeland Linder International Airport and see the planes flying on a downwind, left downwind for runway 9. I don't get to see them that often. Uh, I'm facing away from the runway, but I still get to see some cool stuff because usually I come in here, it's dark out already, uh, but now I get to enjoy a lot of the flying and also a lot of my friends hanging out at the airport. Uh, the sun goes down a lot later, and uh, we get to sit there and and enjoy a, a, a cocktail while we're watching the, the sunset after our, our long day of flying. That's another part I love about uh, summer flying and uh, just being able to to really do things that we have to do during the day and then get out to the airport and actually watch the sunset over the runway, which many times we can't do at other times of the year. But with that said, we're going to talk a little bit about the hazards of summer flying and Something, some advice as far as uh, kind of maneuvering around those hazards in our life, in our flying life, because I think that's really important is to, first of all, recognize what it is. We recognize those hazards and, uh, and then try to mitigate those hazards uh, when through both our own tools, then the cockpit, and also both in our philosophy as far as flying. So let's first talk about the big, uh, big thing in the room, the big grill in the room, and that's the thunderstorms. Uh, first of all, I I feel that a lot of people have a lot of fear of thunderstorms, which they should. 
Um, but as you start operating around thunderstorms and understanding your local weather patterns, uh, you can actually do a little bit more flying. My only advice is that you do get to know uh, your local patterns. You do give yourself an out and just be very careful. But uh, let's talk a little bit about avoiding those thunderstorms, though. And we talk about large thunderstorms and avoiding them. You know, how far should we be away from those thunderstorms? Uh, most of the time, we really should give ourselves about 20 miles um, and even more, depending on how large that thunderstorm is. And that gives us a lot of options. And one of the things that we can do by staying that far away is we avoid some of the turbulence. Uh, we avoid actually some of the, you know, the gusty winds. We avoid some of the wind shear, that type of thing. Uh, but we also avoid other things that some of us don't think about, uh, but happens a lot even here in Florida. And believe me, I have had with my car, my car knows, uh, is avoiding those thunderstorms by a large margin because there's something that comes out of those thunderstorms, and that's hail. Uh, so we really want to try to stay as far away from those. Uh, give yourself about 20 miles. Um, what, you know, after years of experience looking at those thunderstorms, you can start seeing, you know, which ones are, are have that large vertical development, which ones can I get a little bit closer to, uh, and, and navigate through those. You know, I have a couple different airplanes I fly. I fly one that has, that can go up to the flight levels and, and get around uh, thunderstorms, most of them. And then I have another one where I'm, there's no way I'm going to outclimb a thunderstorm. And by the way, even in a larger plane like the, the jet I fly for work, I can't get on top of a lot, especially a, a 45,000 tall thunderstorm. We still navigate around those. And people always say, well, you fly over the weather. It's like, well, actually, we fly around the weather. Uh, we normally don't fly over all the weather. It's the low weather that we fly over. And honestly, as a, as a general aviation pilot, we do the same, right? Uh, you see a cloud that's developing. Maybe it's only developed up to 6,000 feet, depending on the airplane you have, up to 14,000 feet. You can easily make that over that uh, with some of the GA uh, planes that I fly with some of my friends. So you, you can look at that. You can look at those options as far as avoiding them and avoiding uh, going you know, around. You want to get around them, but also give a safe margin over uh, those thunderstorms, too. Uh, so, Tom, I know that you're also one that flies both um, a jet aircraft and also a general aviation aircraft. How much of a margin do you usually uh, teach your students uh, as far as trying to avoid those thunderstorms, both vertically and, and laterally? Um, yeah, you hit it on the head. That 20-mile margin is, is um, you know, that's, that's the one that we all learned, and that's the one that we try to, try to uh, adhere by. Um, it, it does it. Um, your point about learning local weather patterns is valid. You know, the, it, once you start learning your own local patterns and what it does, I mean, uh, for Florida, for the central west coast of Florida, I mean, after years of flying there, uh, the way that the terrain is in Florida, I pretty much have started knowing where the thunderstorms are going to grow at different times of year, you know. Um, over your area in the Lakeland area, right up the center of the state. You know, this time of year, that's where they're developing. You know, if it's not a frontal system, it's usually just built out of convection. We get unstable air, we got lots of moisture, and we got lots of lifting action. And those storms will develop and mature and dissipate all within a small area because this time of year, our winds are pretty um, pretty soft. So there's nothing there to push these things around. You know, um, earlier, like three four months ago we had a lot of frontal systems you know the jet stream was way down south and it was pushing these frontal systems in and we get these moving thunderstorms that will chase you you know um the other thunderstorm 
habits that I just described, they'll just kind of sit there. And if you know where they are and you've recognized those patterns, there's times where it's easier to fly around those things because they're a non-factor even within that 20-mile radius. Um, the big thing comes with um, flying through things that you can't see. And, and that's where the recognition comes in, you know, knowing how something's going to develop, where it's going to develop, and what the hazards are within that cloud, you know. Um, then that's the GA side. Like you were saying, you know, I'm flying in a jet and you're flying up at, at flight levels. You know, um, there's times where I'm 40, you know, 430, 450, and you can see all of these storms. And you don't go through them, you go around them. Because us too, you know, there's storms that will go up and beyond where we're flying. But they're easier to see, and I'm going a lot faster. You figure a storm that's moving 10, 15 knots, and we're doing meet, you know, it's, it's easier to get around them with that than, say, in a Cessna that's doing 110 knots. Yes, it's still faster than the storm, but you... Um, you can it, it find yourself in a place where it's harder to get out of trouble and you can't see as well because you're down, down lower. You mentioned flying around and, and navigating around storms. And one of the things that we always advise is to fly in the upwind side, you know, having all the thunderstorms and all the, you know, anything that can be thrown off the thunderstorm uh, to the downwind side, being like hail and that type of thing. <clears throat> but one of the things we want to talk about too is how do you how do you determine what the upwind and downwind side is? You're flying along, you see this thunderstorm. Uh, many times you can see the top being blown off uh, towards the downwind side. Uh, also, another cool thing you can use tools in your aircraft and you can see where the winds are coming from. You know, you should be able to calculate that obviously, and it's really that simple. You can see where the winds are coming from and fly to that upwind side. If you have a choice, I definitely advise uh, trying to go around. Uh, on the upwind side, uh, not definitely not the downwind side. Uh, that means for us uh, as GA pilots, it might be a long uh, road home. But honestly, if and this is something that I'd like to get the you know our co-hosts' feelings on this. I always hear this. It's like, gosh, this my flight's going to be so long if I go around this storm. And man, I've been I've been going around storms for years, and it really it doesn't add that much to my trip. And by that, I mean this. Think about it from, take a big picture look at this. If you're, you can't go because that thunderstorm's there, but if you can go like 200, 200 miles out of your way, which is a long way, and get to your destination, that's still better than sitting there and not making it at all. You could be sitting there for six, seven, eight hours, where if you just add an hour, hour and a half to your flight, you can still make it to your destination. Uh, that happens a lot of times because Tom had a great point. In a lot of the times, these storms sit there and they don't move and they get really big and you're going to have to go all the way around them. So make that as part of your planning, you know, to, to go around those thunderstorms. Uh, Sean, I was wondering from you, I know you, you fly a lot around a lot of mountains and things like that. Um, how is it that you plan on flying around thunderstorms in the mountainous areas that you fly in? Well, you know, the lucky thing here in Utah, and I, you know, I say this kind of jokingly all the time, is I miss thunderstorms. They really don't pop up here all that much um, a few days a year. So uh, compared with, with the southeast there where you all are in Florida and, and the Midwest, Kentucky, where I used to live, uh, thunderstorms were a pretty significant concern there. Here, um, you'll see them, you know, coming on radar, uh, you know, 
I don't believe there's been a day where I was set to fly where there have been thunderstorms in the vicinity, but I'm a pretty conservative pilot. Uh, my approach, if we're just going up on a local training flight, is, hey, let's wait till they're clear or push to another day. Um, but, uh, yeah, I wish I had more kind of local knowledge to tell you as far as, uh, as navigating the terrain and the thunderstorms around them. But I have to say I've kind of lucked out and not had <laughs> to deal with it too much, uh, and I, I hope that continues. Yeah, that's one of the nice things about flying. Even in the in the hilly country, they kind of they get to the mountains. They sometimes dissipate that type of thing. I've flown around a, through through a few thunderstorms out in the hill country. You know, especially in Utah when I used to fly out there. Uh, and uh, it really, you're right. It doesn't build up like those places, like in the plain states and Texas and those type of things. They get huge and uh, very difficult to get around. One of sure. thing, and one of the yeah, things that, that you must do, you have to, I would assume, plan for this because you still get those thunderstorms. That could really box you in, I would think. Right, yeah, and, and and kind of like you all were saying, there is some local familiarity with it. Uh, you know, we, we typically know that um, most of the precipitation, uh, a lot of times, is going to fall on the the east side of the, the Wasatch Mountains after the, the air is forced upward there along the, uh, the mountain front. Our training area is out to the west. Um, so a lot of times, whether it's thunderstorms or snowstorms, uh, a lot of the a lot of the precipitation is happening um, from the peaks of the mountains to the east, away from our practice area. So again, me being as conservative as a pilot as I am, I like to make sure that there's nothing that's going to be approaching uh, my route of flight if I'm going to be flying between mountain ranges that could put me in a situation where I can't get out of the way, whether it's due to the terrain or due to the storms. You know, you talk about not wanting to get boxed in or squeezed into a mountain range you can't fly over and then a thunderstorm on the other side of you. Um, for me, it's all about just keeping an eye on that radar, keeping an eye on the, uh, the TAF, and um, if there's any hint that I might get into a situation that I can't get back out of, then I'll, I'll just put the flying off to another day. Yeah, that's some great advice. You know, one thing we haven't talked about, though, is flying over the thunderstorms. I know in the mountains, especially in uh, 172, you're probably not going to fly over them. But I know we have uh, flown over, and, and, and I have to say, in like in a 172 or in a Cirrus, I should say, getting over a, a rain shower, a really large thunderstorm, obviously we're not going to go over can be something, and I usually advise not to do it, and I'll tell you why. If you see a cloud that's growing, uh, you may misjudge that and realize that uh, by the time you get there, you may be in the top of that cloud, and that's going to be one rough ride. And the top of that thunderstorm, as it's as it's growing, is very, very difficult to judge that. And believe me, I've gotten stuck at them, and it is not fun. Uh, that's where you get your severe turbulence, and uh, and people both in the airplane and then possibly the plane could actually uh, get hurt. But uh, Tom, how about I know you fly a lot of Cirrus aircraft. Uh, you know, how about going over those storms? Maybe small, obviously not a big one. Um, what do you advise your students or the people you fly with as far as flying over thunderstorms? So generally, I mean. Most of the storms, if it's going to develop here in Florida into a thunderstorm, you're not going to fly over it in a Cirrus. It's just not going to happen. So you're going to have to figure out a way around it. And the problem is, is depending on how um, the stability of the air is, you know, around that thunderstorm. You know, you may have this big area of instability and then some more stable air that's that's on the outside of it. So now you're in these all different layers and stuff like that that you can you, you can't even see that thunderstorm that you're going at. You know, so, I mean, you have other indicators, you have radar, you know, we all have ADS 
be in our planes now with poor flight and you can see these things and we'll talk more about that about time delays and all that other stuff but you know i mean in a, in a smaller aircraft i i tell my students you know you're going to avoid this thing and you're going to go around it you're not going to try to go over the top of it because of even some of the things you just described you know the convection starts happening starts pushing that stuff upwards it's very difficult to judge how high that thing's going to get and how fast it's going to get there um it happens fast enough here that you can literally see it you can sit and stare at a cloud and you can just watch it billowing upward. I mean, it's really cool when you get one that's right next to you and you can see it just going up into that, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 foot range and, um, you know, watch that thing grow. And, and you know what's coming after it. That's for sure. And those storms can throw out yeah. things right above it and boom, you know, you're, you're hurt. Um, you know, and that's some great advice. I tell people usually don't fly over anything that's building. I mean, obviously some little cloud. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a thunderstorm. And that is really something that's some great advice. Uh, just because you never know what's going to happen when you get there. You don't know what's going to be thrown off that thunderstorm and how far, how far it's going to go, as how high it's going to go. Because uh, sometimes we just can't judge those things. So, so give it a lot of room. Don't fly over it. Fly around it, that type of thing. The other hazard with air, uh, thunderstorms is what I, I call the airspace squeeze. I had this happen to me the other day, uh, a couple days ago, going over some military airspace, and uh, the airway that I was on, right in the middle of it, was a thunderstorm, and the military didn't want to give up any airspace around it, uh, so we're like, well, we're not flying through that thunderstorm. Uh, and this is kind of some advice there as far as thunderstorms flying uh, with air traffic control. Um, don't worry about thunderstorms and flying through them and upsetting an air traffic controller. Uh, you just don't go through it. Um, you know, you just have to tell them, I can't. I mean, unable. You, you just, and if you have to use your, your emergency authority, just do not go through that thunderstorm. Uh, so I, when I talk about these squeezes, uh, I know, Tom, you've had some experience with this, and there are certain places in Florida where you have prohibited areas, uh, you have military operation areas that become hot and stuff like that, and they're like, hey, listen, we can't give up that airspace, and now all of a sudden... I'm being squeezed, not just through airspace that is possibly, say I'm VFR, that's possibly uh, military, but also maybe a, a class Bravo airspace. And uh, and I will say, uh, I had a student do this and bumped into uh, an area that was, uh, you know, the president was in the area and bumped into that airspace and actually lost his certificate for a while and took a while to get that back. So we really want to make sure that we're trying as hard as we can to not have that airspace squeeze. And so now, not only do we have to worry about mountains and the Wasatch Mountains, not only do we have to worry about getting around the thunderstorms, now we got to worry about being squeezed between a thunderstorm and an airspace. Just remember the airspace can't hurt you, but the thunderstorm can. Uh, I, and I, don't, I know I'm going to get emails about this. There is certain airspace where they, they actually point missiles at us. I get it. Uh, but in general, if you're communicating and say, hey, listen, I have an emergency. i got to get around thunderstorm i can't go through it otherwise i'm not going to make it then i think you'll have a, a much better chance of of kind of arguing that later so it's better to argue on the ground than have to worry about uh again hurting yourself or hurting your airplane that that's for sure um but tom i you know i was kind of wondering up in your neck of the woods i noticed there's a lot of military airspace i'm i'm sure you've had some kind of squeezes as far as uh, thunderstorms are concerned absolutely and you know i mean generally they were on you know, cross-country flights with students and things like that, or you're going someplace, and it is. It's easy to, it, it, you know, there's a lot of land out there. There's a lot of places where you can go fly, and yet there's a lot of airspaces that are restrictive. 
you know, so you got to you got to navigate that. Now throw in a couple of thunderstorms and uh, other phenomena that are in your way, and it makes the decision making process just a different game. And and that's where that situational awareness comes in to to understand what's going on and what are the possibilities. You know, um, I don't know if anybody's absolutely perfect with weather, but you know, you, you got to you got to learn how to read it. And as a pilot, that's what we are tasked with doing. You know, and and we try to get as much information as we possibly can, you know, and like, uh, Sean was talking about his weather, the way it is out West and out in the mountains out there, it's completely different than what it is here in Florida. Um, I've had the opportunity to fly with lots of students who come here from areas like Sean's and they're like completely freaked out about thunderstorms. You know, me, I'm more freaked out about mountain flying because it's flat as a pancake here, you know? So <laughs> when I get in the mountains, now I got to pay really close attention to what's going on, you know? Um, I'll give you an example. I was flying out west one time and, and was looking at a, a METAR from an airport out there. And um, in the remarks section, it had uh, an acronym that was uh, ACSL. And it was in the METAR. And for the life of me, I could not figure out what that was until I got on the ground. I was actually quite embarrassed about it. But when I got on the ground, I looked up my, all my METAR stuff. And ACSL stands for Alto Cumulus Standing Lenticular. That sounds important. You know, that is something that you would want to know if, if there was a alto cumulus standing lenticular cloud sitting next to a mountain. That is something that you would want to know. And you would definitely not want to put a small aircraft through it. You know, so it's all about local knowledge and where you're going and being able to pick up that knowledge as you fly into different areas. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. Great advice. Uh, and and that's great that you looked that up because a lot of us, I mean, that fly in the mountains and over the mountains all year long, you know, we're, we're kind of used to seeing that. We know that that's going to be a bumpy ride. And so, and I'm sure Sean is used to that too. Uh, but, uh, you know, we talked a lot about thunderstorms, Tom and, and Sean. And one of the things that we've, if you notice, we're discussing this for a long period of time because this is a big one. Uh, thunderstorms do get people in trouble. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I've had friends uh, not make it through thunderstorms, and I really don't want to see anybody do that. So I'm a big fan of just avoiding them as, uh, as much as you can. Uh, if you've got radar aboard your aircraft, that's great. We're going to talk about some other things as far as uh, different tools we can use to navigate around them. But try to, try to get away from them as much as possible. But let's, th let's talk about some of the other things, too. Uh, some of the things that come about because of summer flying, because there's a little more humidity in the air. Uh, one of the things that I, especially on some of the airplanes I've had in the past that I ran into, even on the ground, is carb ice. Oh, my gosh. Uh, one of the aircraft I had just, uh, I had to have that carb heat on most of the time in the summer, in the humid days. Uh, it would just ice up so much because uh, of, of the type of carburetor in the engine that we had. Uh, and that was something that we, we all need to be aware of because a lot of times we forget about that because it's summer and we're saying to ourselves, well, you know, it's not a big deal. And just remember, I mean, how much uh, that temperature can be reduced to the freezing level going through your carburetor. Uh, you know, decrease in pressure, decrease in temperature leads to carb ice even uh, in a warm day. Uh, so don't forget that and don't forget that knowledge that you got when you're a private pilot and use the carb heat, use the recommended settings in your airplane. Uh, but also, uh, if you think you're having a rough engine, go through the checklist and possibly put that carburetor heat on. Uh, so that's something that I, I really think that people should be aware of. 
but also even in other types of aircraft. Remember that humidity is is uh, something that's bad for all things, uh, especially in corrosion, and as far as corrosion is concerned, uh, and water in your fuel. I mean, with the, how many times have we gone out there, uh, had a cold night, and in the morning sumped the tanks, uh, especially after sloshing the tanks around a little bit, and uh, we had uh, some water in our fuel. And that's something I really think is, is really important as far as humidity is concerned. Uh, how about guys, what do you think? I mean, Tom, as far as humidity, uh, what other effects? I mean, we got carb ice. We talked about water and fuel. Uh, what else do you, can we uh, expect from our aircraft possibly being more in, in the humid air? Uh, well, I don't know. Those those points that you mentioned were pretty good you know the when i start thinking about all the humidity down here the next thing i start thinking of is temperature and visible moisture you know so um but as far as thinking of my aircraft what else is gonna affect me and you're you're right with the the carb ice you know you get uh, a certain level of humidity at a certain temperature you're gonna start you know um getting some of that uh moisture in the air freezing in your carburetor you know that's why they put those carb heaters on there. They make it so that we can um, um, melt that back out again. And I, I've had it happen on a ramp too. And I've had it happen in the air. I've had it happen on a, on a climb out. Generally, you don't use carb, out, carb heat on a climb out and just had the perfect conditions and I could feel that thing spitting and sputtering and, and that's what fixed it. You know, you could, you could feel it icing up. Um, lose a little bit of power until you get it melted out, and then it goes right back to it again. And it's it's learning how to recognize what your engine's doing when that's happening. Yeah, and another thing, too, just to add, uh, it doesn't affect it as much, but it's the performance of your engine. Uh, it will decrease uh, with more humid air. Uh, obviously, the density is something that is affected, make, affects it more, uh, but also having a water in the air. I mean, that's, uh, that's also going to have, and having humidity is going to affect that, affect your engine. Another thing that really we should mention, and this is something that I've seen quite often, especially with people that fly in, well, you know, I, I have to say it's everybody, but I was about to say people that fly with uh, fuel-injected systems is the hot starts. I mean, we're already starting this engine, uh, and it's it's warm. <laughs> say you're in the it's in the afternoon. It's been sitting outside, and you're getting in the airplane. Uh, that airplane can actually have some issues starting. Uh, and one of the things that we really need to do in our airplane, no matter what you're flying is look at what the hot start procedures are. I mean, there's some great stuff out there. I think AOPA had a good video. There's a couple of videos out there. You know, how to start an engine, a fuel-injected engine, uh, and how to do a hot start, uh, both from after running the airplane and actually the first of the day, starting the engine first time for the day. Um, you know, I know that uh, one of the stories I was to relate to you is, you know, just sitting there watching somebody just cranking and cranking and cranking the engine basically fuel just just kind of pouring out the bottom and uh and this person doesn't understand what's going on and why because they haven't really started the engine in a hot uh and humid environment especially after stopping it so remember that uh go over that with um with your instructor if you have a student uh go over how how do you perform a hot start both in a you know fuel injected how do you do a hot start uh in an in aircraft that has a carburetor uh, so make sure that you are going over that with your students. Uh, and uh, so, Sean, I think in the aircraft you're flying, are you flying uh, injected or a carbureted aircraft? 
Uh, I'm flying a mix. Uh, some fuel injected, some of the older uh, carbureted engines, and um, I, I'm aware of of hot starts and and occasionally getting you know vapor lock in there. Uh, ours are. are I've been lucky uh, as with the storms. I've never had to have that situation where I'm sitting on the ground going out. Oh, well, it's going to be a bit before I can get the engine started. Uh, but I, I've certainly heard stories about people, you know, certainly getting in that situation. They just got to just got to wait it out. Um, but yeah, ours I, I have been good to us. They'll uh, they'll typically start up with uh, no more than one or two tries. Yeah, lucky for you, and uh, again, lucky for the, especially the folks in the carbureted engines. I think it's uh, it's a <laughs> makes like a little bit easier. There's a couple things though, especially with the carbureted engines. Sometimes you you start the engine. You're used to seeing you know, the, the some unexpected engine in- indications. Say the oil pressure usually is like super high, and it doesn't do that. So the, those are the the kind of things that you might see as far as some of those hot starts. But really, one of the things that I I really implore you to do is. Every you ever notice every airplane kind of starts a little bit different. So know your airplane, know the airplanes that you rent, and get out there and and have someone show you how to do a hot start um, and talk a little bit about it. Uh, it's in the manual. So uh, also you know don't remember this. I know some people make fun of me when I I go into my my jet at work and they say, well it doesn't affect you. You know the that you're not affected by this. Oh it sure does. Uh, as far as the the humidity and as far as uh, you know summer flying. Number one, um, we have to be aware of when the temperatures get high enough. Our because you know we got this big metal airplane wing, and we use you know anti ice and and de ice equipment. That equipment actually is monitored with a temperature gauge, right, and a temperature sensor, I should say, and that actually can read high and so high that it'll show that we have a leak. Because remember, in some of these jets, we have you know hot air bleed air that goes out to the front of the wing and it shows a bleed leak and you know what we can't fly with an indication of a bleed leak so what do we do uh, we do things like uh, keep the flaps out and uh, the slats out so that it'll actually have airflow uh, underneath the slats and the flaps so that we don't get that and primarily the slats obviously uh, for anti-ice which is on the front of the wing and that's something that you you know we do so don't think just because it's a, a jet engine that you can't have an issue with with the hot starts and and that type of thing and one of the things that really affects everything every airplane is density altitude um there's something that i I, i'm kind of curious since i haven't been doing a lot of instructing on the primary but this is something that i really drill into the head of of all my primary students is is determine your density altitude determine your takeoff and landing distance and i tell you it's a lot of fun to go sit with somebody and say, hey, look, if this was, if we were 90 degrees today, how long would it take uh, to actually depart this runway? And uh, I know, Sean, you were talking about how hot it gets where you are, and especially down in the valley and all. Um, how, do, what do you do with your students as far as, because uh, you get you get cold too. I mean, you get some really, you know, <laughs> you know, high density and low density altitudes where mm-hmm. you are. How do you go over that with your students? We certainly get the extremes. Um, you know, this time of year, we, we're doing that uh, before uh, before flight planning list uh, and and worksheet every flight. So we're figuring out our density altitude, figuring out our pressure altitude. Um, and it, on a day like today, the density altitude, we're sitting here at 4,200 feet in the valley. The density altitude was, uh, I believe, about 7,600 uh, feet uh, in the valley. So we're definitely looking at what our performance is going to be. Uh, what's our climb performance going to be? What's our takeoff and landing distance going to be? I mean, we're lucky enough we're flying out of, of salt lake city international class bravo airport our our runways you know 9600 feet long so 
you know, it, it would be rare for us to, to have a situation where we would not have enough runway. Um, but, you know, certainly not having enough climb performance could be a, an issue. Um, I've not had a day where I've had a flight scheduled yet where it, it has just been unsafe to go. But it's certainly in the back of my mind every time we're going out to the airport and uh, getting ready to sit down. We're in the middle of a heat wave. I was just looking. I think we hit 103 today, and it's supposed to get hotter tomorrow. Um, so all of the instructors and students out there at the airport are certainly going to be uh, looking hard and doing those calculations before they head out for the pre-flight. Yeah, that's that's great, I and mean, it's good advice as far as uh, especially that's pretty darn hot uh, out there. That's for sure. Uh, but uh, as far as the density altitude, again, make sure you're operating uh, within the limitations of the aircraft. Uh, you don't want to get yourself stuck, uh, especially at the end of the runway, wishing that you had more runway in front of you uh, because you made you did your calculations <laughs> improperly. Uh, but uh, anyway, these are some of the hazards uh, that we talked about. Thunderstorms, humidity, density, altitude. It affects all airplanes. Uh, we, we really hope that uh, you'll read some of the different books that are out there, watch some of the videos on YouTube, and see what people have done and how they've navigated. Sometimes you can learn a lot from other people's uh, bad decisions. Uh, I've flown through, in my lifetime, two level five thunderstorms and uh, never want to do it again. Uh, it wasn't on purpose, obviously, and uh, live to tell about it, but I tell you what, it was uh, one scary uh, experience trying to keep the plane from both stalling and overspeeding uh, within seconds of each other. Not, not, a bla not a real fun way to be, so don't, don't go into a thunderstorm. That's my big, uh, my big advice there today. One of the things I like, though, is the fact that when we're flying with our friends, that we can go out and fly during the summer. Uh, we can take them up. The days are longer. I love the fact that I'm able to take people out. But, but I tell you what, one of the things that I've done that is, uh, and it, it really kind of messed me up for a while. I took my my w wife in one of my previous airplanes, the first time flying. This was so dumb. I I took her up at like three o'clock in the afternoon because she couldn't get going till later in the afternoon and. And then there was like rain showers and it was bumpy. And I was like, you know what? You know, I really so wanted to get take her up flying. But you know what I did? I did I did one of the worst things I could have done. I got her in the airplane. We went flying and she didn't like it because it was too bumpy and it was too hot. Uh, so sometimes our wanting to get somebody in an airplane, a spouse, a friend, etc., blurs our vision to the experience that they're about to have. Uh, so one of, <laughs> I, I, I just, I kicked myself for so many, it took me years, uh, you know, to get her back in the airplane and took a few cocktails on her part to get back in the airplane too. Uh, but it, uh, it finally happened. And what I did is this, I basically flew later in the day, uh, you know, fly early in the day. If you want to take someone up, fly later in the day, do your planning around the part of the day, uh, where it's calmer, the sun's setting, the sun's rising, uh, that type of thing uh, when you're taking up someone who is and I'm not just talking about new flyers anybody who's nervous about flying in the bumps I really believe we should try as hard as we can to get more people involved in aviation and general aviation non-pilots especially so one of the big things is actually you know fly earlier in the day also fly later in the day if you find yourself pushing so that you can take somebody up or they want to go right away uh, and they have to leave. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. It's, it's Florida. You might want to kind of tell them what the ride's going to be like and have, have alternatives. Uh, if you do get going and you're like 
20, 30 miles into your trip and your passenger's like, I can't take this anymore. You, you better decide what you're going to do at that point. So have that in your planning process. What do I do if my you know passenger starts getting you know sick or something like that? So make sure you do that. Also bring a lot of water uh, for everybody to hydrate. People are going to be sweating. Uh, and another thing that I think I started doing, especially for low-wing airplanes and any of my high-wing, is shade the aircraft. Shades for your plane, uh, the window covers, that type of thing. Uh, with the, the pipe aircraft, I love putting a shade over top. Um, we have Bruce's covers in one of them. Uh, with the Cessnas, just having those, those window inserts. Boy, that really takes the heat down. Uh, another thing that I did, and I know Tom saw me, at, I think you saw me when I did this uh, at Sun and Fun, I purchased that, that cooling system, remember, for the aircraft. And it's one of those systems where you put the, the ice in there and it actually cools down the, the aircraft. It does a decent job. Uh, the thing that uh, helped me a lot, too, as far as shading the plane, was having the plane in a hangar. If you can and you, know, you have the money, get a hangar. Get the pre-flight done the day before. Go back, do your pre-flight again before the flight. Get everything ready inside the hangar and then pull it out and then get your passenger inside and then start going. And that has changed uh, things tremendously for me is, is having that hangar uh, and being able to have the ability to keep everybody nice and, and cool and that type of thing. Uh, and then hats. That's another thing, too, that I, I forgot is... Uh, at sometimes I'll forget my hat, and especially flying, it helps me, uh, you know, keeping the sun out of your eyes uh, and less strain. It's obviously better for your eyes not to have the sun on your eyes, but that's uh, those are some of the big ones that I use. You know, water, shades for your plane, shades for yourself, plane covers, and, and flying in, in different times of the day. Um, and so I'd love to hear from you guys. Um, Sean, as far as uh, what other tips might you have as far as uh, summer flying or, or kind of advice you give to the people that are out there flying for your passengers and for your students? Yeah, you know, make use of those air vents. Um, anything you can do to keep your passengers as cool and comfortable as possible, keep the air vents on. You mentioned the hats and water. Those are huge. Um, and then from a pilot's perspective, I've had the, uh, you know, of course, we're all using iPads these days. I've had the uh, the warning pop up a couple of times to say, hey, your iPad's about to shut down if you don't get it out of the sunlight. Um, so keep an eye on that, too. I know I've not used any of these, but I know that there are products out there that have cooling fans that you can pop your iPad into that uh, that purport to keep the iPad cool and, and not have it overheat. Um, but that's worth looking into if you're going to routinely be operating in a cockpit where that sun is just beating down on that iPad. Um, and then, of course, like you've mentioned, the hot weather, you're also going to have the thermals and the bumps, um, just keeping an eye on your passengers. And if there's any hint that they're feeling uncomfortable, go ahead and, and terminate the flight then because you guys know as well as I do the time uh, by, by the time they start feeling sick it's far too late and you're <laughs> gonna have to start looking for a six sack in that cockpit so monitor them and just be over conservative when it comes to, to their conditions because they're not gonna necessarily recognize how quickly they're going to, to deteriorate when the time comes. Um, I've, I've only had one puker in the airplane. He had really good aim. And uh, hopefully <laughs> that's, the, that's the only one I ever have. Uh, and, and it's all about just monitoring them uh, and, and learning from each experience that you have and, and how to kind of anticipate the, the feelings that they might have up there. 
Yeah, good point, Sean. By the way, six sack in the airplane. Uh, also keep one right next to you so that you can grab one and give it to the person next to you. So uh, that way they uh, can have their aim will be always good. <laughs> uh, so uh, and the other thing too, I never mentioned, buy an air conditioner. Uh, that's something else you can do if you. Uh, I've actually flown in some pipe aircraft that were super cold and uh, and a Cirrus aircraft that was super cold, and I think that was kind of the the coolest thing. Tom, how about you? As far as keeping your your passengers and your uh, students, uh, what type of advice do you give them as far as flying in the summer? Sure, and it's you know lots of good stuff you guys were talking about, and and you know being in Florida, I mean, what's our weather? It's hot and really hot, you know, and and in the summertime and in a plane uh, that that doesn't have air conditioning, it it can be. Um, um, stifling, you know, so all of those things about staying hydrated and, and figuring out ways to keep yourself cool. I mean, here, um, it's altitude, you know, I mean, if, if I was having students in the middle of the day, I try to find a little bit more altitude if I can, you know, we would get out to our practice area and once you started getting above 3000 feet up to 4000 feet, you know, uh, of course, airports at sea level, so 4,000 feet up, the temperature was starting to get down low enough to where it was like starting to feel comfortable in the airplane. And, you know, the days that it was the most um, challenging were the days where um, you're going to spend the whole day in the pattern and the most you're getting is 1,000 feet off the ground. And, and you know, after 5, 10, and 15 times around the pattern, you know, it, it starts it's wearing on you even as, as an instructor who's in the plane all day long it's like okay i need to get out of this plane and get on the ground because it's um it's quite miserable at, at some point you know 90 degree weather 85 to 90 percent humidity it, it'll it'll uh change the way that your body feels so as far as you know the student themselves and passengers you know it, a lot of it's information you know here in florida that sun hits the the ground and it creates all sorts of little thermals and stuff and you know we start getting bouncy even when there's not a lot of wind blowing and i try to inform people of what's going on of how the sun's hitting the earth and how it's creating these thermals and that it's completely normal and that you know the bouncing in the plane it's going to happen in a small plane and uh you know the plane's completely made to take it i liken it to going across a lake hitting waves boom 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 going across the lake you're doing the same thing hitting these thermals just you can't see them you know because it's just air and uh you know a lot of times when people have information like that and they understand what's going on on the outside puts them a little bit more at ease uh, when they're inside the plane um a little better able to uh handle all the other uncomfortable situations as far as weather and, and humidity and heat and, and things like that that's uh, some great advice tom you know, talking about information, let's move on to some tools for pre-flight, and uh, and then we're going to talk a little about tools in flight. And there's going to be something I think you're going to find interesting that uh, most airline pilots use uh, to navigate around thunderstorms. Uh, tools I use obviously are one thing that I think is huge is the prog charts. Uh, that's something on the internet you can just find it. Real simple. Look at prog charts. Prog charts. Uh, prognostications are wonderful tell you where the thunderstorms are going to be when you should plan to your departure uh, you can also talk with your flying partner and say hey you know we're gonna we're gonna be fighting some thunderstorms unless we leave at like eight o'clock in the morning or maybe we should leave at eight o'clock at night after the storms pass through uh, just a great tool for some general planning uh, will you be able to predict where all the thunderstorms are never uh, you can't predict every thunderstorm, but 
you can get a good idea. You can get a good idea what you're up against is just looking at those prog charts. Uh, AviationWeather.gov, uh, other things that you can find uh, information on is your iPad. Uh, I have really, I, I'm a big believer now about with the iPad. Uh, I won't fly without it now because it has so much information on it that I can glean for uh, navigating around weather uh, and uh, and finding XM weather, you know, ADSB in that type of thing, uh, while I'm flying around using that. Uh, but there's some limitations uh, to some of that weather, and I, I know there's more. There's thunderstorm. There, there's all sorts of hazardous weather predictions. My favorite is the prog chart. I'm sure some of you guys have some other favorites. Uh, but uh, Tom, I think you know we were kind of talking about that before. There are some limitations though on some of these things on our iPads and with XM weather. I think you mentioned it before uh, about some type of delay. What were you talking about when you mentioned that? Yeah. So. You know, that it's just an understanding of how the radar works and how, how much time it takes to get to you. When you're looking at a, a, a shot of the radar on your iPad that's coming across via ADSB or even XM weather or whatever, there's going to be a delay on it. You know, sometimes it's not that long. It can be within a few minutes, but sometimes it can be as much as 10, 15 minutes old. So, you know, I mean, so what you're looking at, on your iPad and what you're looking at out of your windscreen could be two completely different things just in that little bit of time, you know? So understanding that of, of, of how it's receiving information is important before you start actually using it to make decisions on, you know, and, and put it in the context. It's like, you know, you've got a device that's shooting out a radar beam. It's bouncing off of a bunch of raindrops that are up in a cloud. It's going back to that device. Then it's going into a computer so it can get all crunched up and that it can be, um, interpolated into um, a usable information, a visual usable information. In other words, it turns it into color. How dense were all them drops and all that stuff? It color codes all that, puts that together. Then it's got to broadcast it back out again. It's got to get into your iPad. It's got to download it. So, I mean, you can hear all these different things that ha have to happen. And even in this day of technology, it takes time. It takes a while for that to happen. So it's important that you understand how the device is working, whatever you're getting your information from, and how current the information you are using is so that you can make a good decision. And realize, too, this, that the information you're getting, it can't predict the future. I know there's so many tools out there that we use to try to predict the future. That's what forecasts are for and, uh, and future radar that's what that's great stuff. That's really cool, but uh, but you can't ever predict the future. I always liken this to those traffic. What's the name of the traffic software that everybody uses? I uh, can't remember it right now, but where it tells you that actually you know what traffic jams are in front of you, that type of thing, uh, and ways. I think it's ways. Yeah. So. I, I always tell my wife and I fight about this all the time and kind of we'd be fighting about weather too is that ways can't predict the future uh, I can tell you that this is probably gonna happen there's probably gonna be a traffic on this road kind of like weather you start getting to know the systems just like you get to know the traffic patterns in your area as far as driving is concerned you get to know the weather and say to yourself hey I know there's no it's no prediction as far as gonna thunderstorms in this area but you know, I, I have a lot of experience here, and I know that that's probably going to happen. So that's going to be my prediction, uh, and that's what I'm going to go with, just through all the experience that I have. Another thing, too, I want to mention before we kind of close out with some of these things is there's so many other tools out there that we use to navigate around weather. And one of these that a lot of 
pilots, especially airline pilots, and this is kind of interesting, a little hack here, weather hack, is that airline pilots a lot of times use Flight Radar 24. Uh, they also use, eight, now that we have ADSB now coming to the airlines, I know it's taken a while, uh, we actually watch what others are doing. Uh, and you can sit there with TCAS even uh, and look at what the other aircraft are doing in front of you. You can look out the window even. And if you see all these airplanes going in a certain direction, you can ask air traffic control, you know, and they'll tell you. But you could also now, without even asking, have this great tool that you can use for way down the line, like maybe you're 300 miles down the line as far as to your, towards your destination, what you see others are doing to get around this weather. You're thinking you're going to go right around the storm, but you notice that all the other airplanes are going left around the storm and it's working. Maybe you need to rethink your idea because you're seeing other aircraft and other aircraft going through the, those weather systems in that manner. And, and quite honestly, it's used often. Uh, it may not even be just the weather. Like I said, there could be an airspace squeeze, you know, and are you being squeezed into the middle of some airspace or between airspace or between airspace and mountains? You can find out all that information as to far as what air traffic control is giving them based on what the people are actually doing flying. It's, uh, it's actually really cool. I mean, I, I really was so excited when I started seeing, you know, airline pods using Flight Radar 24, and people are like, well, you can't use that in the cockpit. Well, yes, you can. As a matter of fact, uh, amazingly enough, airliners and we can all look at any tool that's going to help us with the weather, with air traffic, and, and maneuvering around weather. Uh, what they don't want you to do, obviously, is watching movies, right, and, and doing you know, other stuff on, in the airplane. This is related to the safety of flight. Use all the tools that you can. Uh, go out there and get as many tools as you can. Interpolate everything and have a safe flight. And make sure you get your friends out there and get up and go flying. Uh, I know Tom and I have been flying, especially, uh, you know, I used to love to go take trips down Okeechobee, as we know, and uh, just really enjoyed that. And those were done this summer, and they were fine because, you know, Tom, like me, likes to get up early, and we shoot out. We, we go out and have fun, have lunch and breakfast or whatever, and, and head on back. And by the end of the day, we're, uh, or middle of the day, we might be done doing our flying or do it later in the day. It was just, uh, just so much fun. So I encourage you to do that. That's for sure. That was a blast, sitting wasn't it? Sitting in a hangar, fat and happy. Yes. <laughs> sit, sit, sitting in a hangar, fat and happy. <laughs> having by, an adult beverage. Now. Yeah. That's having the way to go. Yep. Having the day day over with by, by noon because you've already done your flying for the morning and and enjoying the, the rest of the day and talking, you know, war stories kind of thing or, or hangar flying, I should say, is a better way to say it. Just a, just a blast, that's for sure. Uh, all these tools, though, and we talk about we talk about having fun flying. Uh, make sure that you take this and integrate it into your life. You know, whatever these things that we talked about are, say about avoiding fly, avoiding thunderstorms and things like that. There's so much there for you. Uh, make sure you make it your own. Make your own your own you know tools for avoiding thunderstorms for flying in the summer. Hopefully these have helped a lot, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to get out there and do some more summer flying. Take your time, uh, learn. Learn from our mistakes, as we've talked about, and learn from the mistakes of others. There's many different tools out there on the Internet, some great stuff out there uh, as, as far as learning weather. Uh, just go to YouTube and look up weather. And, uh, and always be careful what you learn on the Internet, obviously. And, uh, and the one cool thing about the Internet, especially YouTube, is if you someone teaches you something and they're not correct, 
somebody will be out there and just immediately say, hey, wait a minute, that's wrong, you know, and uh, that is one good thing about it. Uh, so, yeah, there can be a lot of misinformation, uh, but also the good thing is that people are checking, which is a good thing. I think that's that's terrific. Really democratizes learning, and I think that's awesome. Uh, guys, this has been really good. You guys have anything else before we get into uh, doing some of the the uh, uh, picks of the week here? No, good talk. Yeah, awesome. No, I enjoyed it too. So I tell you what, guys, why don't we talk about the uh, the post-flight checklist now and, and move on to our picks of the week. Our picks of the week. First of all, one of the things that I really love is reading. And uh, just read a book uh, last night and uh, just enjoyed learning about all different things about flying, history, and stuff like that. But since we're on the flying topic, uh, one thing that I've, gosh, I've had in my library for years. As a matter of fact, I update it whenever a new edition comes out is uh, this Weather Flying book by Robert Buck. Absolutely awesome. It's in its fifth edition. Highly recommend it. It's on uh, Amazon. If you use the link, by the way, in our show notes, it helps us out, helps support this uh, podcast here. Uh, and, uh, and of course, please you know, take a look at our, our Patreon account and see if you can help us out there. Th- all that money we use for the Patreon account, every dollar we raise, one goes towards uh, giving away a scholarships guide. But uh, anyway, that's my pick of the week is Weather Flying by Robert Buck. Tom, what is your pick of the week? So I uh, would have liked to have picked your pick of the week because it is. It goes right along with the topic that we had today. But I got to thinking about it and thought, well, what are some of the things that I used when I was trying to really dive into learning about weather? So if you haven't ever heard about a SKU-T log P chart, or chart it is a chart where they'll go through and um, give you precise temperature it's done with weather balloons they let a weather balloon go and and it records all of this information at all sorts of different layers all the way up through the atmosphere you know so temperature pressure dew point so and well you would ask what do you might what do you use this for so you can just on a very simple version you can look at a um, one of these qt log p charts and see where the temperature and dew point converge and diverge and what that will tell you is where's the level of the clouds where do the clouds start where are the bases where are the tops you know you, when you start really looking into these things they become um, a predictor where you can start looking at um, where the potential is for thunderstorms tornadoes hail all sorts of weather phenomena that, that um, are important to us as as pilots so what my pick of the week is, is it's the, um, the training page for the SKU-T log P charts, which is located on weather.gov. And if you've never, there's more information here, it'll make your head hurt. You know, um, there is more information out on the web that you can get that will simplify a lot of this stuff. But this is a good place to start because it'll give you a lot of the terminology and a lot of the ideas of what's going on with it. And if you want to geek out on some weather, here's a good place to start. I'm getting a headache looking at it already. I'm checking it out right now, but uh, great stuff, man. Uh, awesome. Uh, a skew T parameter chart, skew T log P diagram. Awesome. Great stuff. Thanks uh, for that. And uh, Sean, what is your pick of the week? Well, you know, we're talking about thunderstorms, crazy high density altitudes, days where it just doesn't make sense to go fly. And there's one thing you can always do when you have one of those days, and that's uh, play with a simulator. Um, And this is a pick of the week that's going to cost me some money down the road. Uh, Microsoft has announced that um, Microsoft Flight Simulator is coming to the Xbox uh, 
in late July. Um, so I, you know, I run a MacBook Pro. I haven't been able to play Microsoft Flight Simulator in about 20 years now, and I've been drooling at all the screenshots and videos from people who've been playing this uh, this latest version. Um, so I think I'm either going to have to pony up and get a PC or get an Xbox next month uh, to be able to see because it looks amazing it is the most lifelike looking simulator i've ever seen when it comes to the cities the airplanes the the clouds this the weather um so yeah next month july 27th it looks like you'll be able to start playing uh, microsoft flight simulator on your actual xbox console now i've got a question you know back in the day when i was just dreaming of flying i mean you had to have an entire keyboard for all the commands so i'm not entirely sure how they're going to work out all the different inputs that you're going to have to do obviously you can have a throttle on a joystick but all the other inputs it's going to be interesting to see how they integrate that into a console based game but uh, but i'm excited and again this is it's going to cost me some money <laughs> but it's worth it <laughs> well yeah sean i i'm sure it will and i'm i'm glad that you brought that up because a lot of folks they've been wanting to actually use this and mac uh, boys like me and really love the mac but they've been wanting to put it on that computer and they've uh well some people go out and buy themselves a you know a, a pc and that's fine uh but it looks awesome i'm looking at the pictures now just amazing so microsoft flight simulator a lot of fun uh actually go around uh, you, you mentioned the word play it really is good play because you're actually practicing too so that's uh, you're gonna learn something while you're flying well, guys, this has been a great discussion on weather flying and summer flying in 2021. I highly recommend that you go and look at some of these links that we have here and just have some fun. Be safe out there as far as flying is concerned in the summer and flying around thunderstorms, flying with high-density altitudes, humidity, that type of thing. Hopefully you've learned something from what we've discussed and and the things that we've talked about. Notice some of the mistakes we've made. Uh, we have people with all different varying backgrounds and uh, varying experiences as far as flying is concerned. But the most important thing is to, when you're looking at summer flying, is to actually approach it so that it's it becomes enjoyable. Uh, and to do that, making it enjoyable by being safe. And by being safe, you can be safer by knowledge and experience. So get out there and fly. Learn things on the internet, just like the things we've given you here. Learn from other people's experiences on the internet, both on YouTube, etc. It's really, really important to do that. And also, one of the things that you can do to get more flight training, obviously, is uh, go out there and get another rating, etc. And a great way to do that and pay for that is through the scholarships guide that uh, we have published there. And you can get one for free, by the way, at stuckmikeavcast.com slash free. And that's made available through our sponsor, Spartan College of Aeronautics and Technology. And uh, it's actually one of the first training schools of aviation uh, for pilots in the country. It's been around for a very long time, over 90 years. They've trained over 100,000 pilots, and they want you to get out there, get more experience flying. And the way to do that is get yourself a scholarship. Uh, use that, that coupon code SPARTAN. Great way to do that, stuckmikeavcast.com slash free. I want to encourage you, though. I want you to go out there and fly. I want you to get out there with your flight instructor. If the weather is bad, get in a simulator. Uh, you'd be surprised at how much you can learn in a simulator or just sitting there talking to your instructor through those experiences. Listen to these podcasts. Uh, but I really, really want you to get out there and fly. Get out there and, and make this a much more enjoyable environment for you and your passengers by learning the tools and the tricks that we've 
put forth today in this podcast. Well, folks, safe line out there. We'll talk to you next episode. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.